In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Lord, as we begin our last class, help us really to open our minds and our hearts and bring this all together so that we learn not only what the last few chapters say, but what is the message that Isaiah is giving us in general throughout 66 chapters. Help us then to not only look at it as history, but look at it as your message, your speaking to us as individuals. And so the message that you are giving to the Jewish people through the prophet, help us to take that to heart and look at it as if you are speaking to us as individuals. So we ask that you help us then in this class and as we go forward, particularly through the remainder of Lent, to pay more attention to you speaking to us personally. This is something that the Jewish people neglected to do and suffered for. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. I hate to end on such a solemn note, but uh, in a way, it's uh, it's always difficult for me to end a series of classes because I've enjoyed all of you, and uh, I hate to see it come to an end. But it needn't really be because I hopefully will see many of you, you know, throughout uh, the next few months. But Getting back to Isaiah now, uh, I'd like to cover the last three chapters and then go into some other things of pulling it all together. Um, before we begin that, but if any of you have any questions that you need to, to get answered, you know, quite often some things will create a, a burning thought in your mind. June? Amen. I totally, totally agree. Yes, for those of you may, who may not have heard June, uh, she's saying really what I've been trying to get across for the last ten weeks is that the things that Isaiah is telling the people is something that really applies to us today because our culture is getting not is getting, but is in the same rut, you might say, that the culture of the Jewish people in the 6th century B.C. was in. And that is in a degrading mindset uh, that is moving further and away, further and further away from God and the teachings of the church. And we are letting it happen by not doing anything about it. And the Jewish people suffered, as you can see, and will continue to see, even through the three chapters that we'll talk about today, uh, how complacency is a form of decay. And it appears that democracy which we've enjoyed for 500 plus years here in America, 
is beginning to decay from selfishness and pride of a few. And the majority of us sit back and say, oh, what can I do? You know, uh, I'm only one person. Well, you can do a great deal because each one person, when bonded together in a cause for good, can do a great deal. And so that really is kind of, in summary, a message, the message that Isaiah is trying to get across to the people. Let's go through chapters 63 through 66. And we'll go through them rather quickly because you've heard all of this before. There are some beautiful passages in these chapters here. Um, and in some ways, it is a summary that brings us to the end. It's unfortunate that we don't have a happy ending. But if you think about it, none of the prophets had a happy ending. All of them, tradition tells us, we have no way to know that for certain. There are no recordings of the deaths of the prophets, or most of them, except for a, a couple uh, like John the Baptist is often considered one of the last or the last of the Old Testament prophets. And we all know how he died. Uh, Jeremiah, we know, was stoned and a few others. But most of them we don't know for sure. But tradition tells us that all of the prophets were um, killed by their own people because they didn't like the people didn't like what the prophets had to say. And, of course, that's true all the way down through John the Baptist to Christ himself. The people didn't like to be told that they were doing things wrong. And that's somewhat human nature. We like to be complimented, but we don't like to be told what we've done wrong. Let's start at 63, and I'd like to go through this rather quickly, um, because there's a lot of other things I would like to cover today. Uh, I think 63, in some ways, is a sad commentary, um, but in some ways it also sums up what the whole message of Isaiah is. Who is this that comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? Basra is still in existence, you know. Who is this glorious in his apparel, striding in the greatness of his strength? It is I, I who announce vindication, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads the winepress? The winepress I have trodden alone. And from the people no more was with, no one was with me. Now this is God speaking through the prophet to the people. I trod them in my anger and trampled them down in my uh, wrath. Now he's speaking to, about the people of Edom. Their blood spurted on my garments. All my apparel I stained. 
for a day of vindication was in my heart. My year for redeeming had come. I looked about, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that there was no one to lend support. So my own arm brought me victory. In other words, Christ, or rather God himself, is taking control over the situation and restoring Israel, or restoring Judaism to the people of Judah, in spite of their lack of interest and their lack of fidelity. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their blood upon the ground. Uh, this is Isaiah's prayer as we go forward. <clears throat> the loving deeds of the Lord I will recall. Again, Isaiah's prayer, not God. I will recall the glorious acts of the Lord because of all the Lord has done for us. The immense goodness to the house of Israel, which he has granted according to his mercy and his many loving deeds. He said, they are indeed uh, my people, children who are not disloyal. And so uh, he became their savior in their every affliction, which means that not everybody in the Jewish people or among the Jewish people of this time period were uh, unfaithful. There were a few faithful people. Remember I said there were a number of good things that came out of this time period, but the majority of them, and Judah in its totality, you might say, suffered because of it. It was not an envoy or a messenger, but his presence that saved them. Because of his love and pity, the Lord redeemed them, lifting them up and carrying them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. And so he turned to become their enemy and warred against them. Then they remembered the days of old, of Moses, his servant, it's funny that whenever the Jewish people of this time period realized that they were being imposed upon, either by a foreign nation or by God himself, oh, they called to God uh, in the voice of Moses and moaned, you know, woe is me, woe is me, uh, be merciful to us, O Lord, and so forth. But they never think about turning their turning themselves around uh, to becoming faithful. Uh, they constantly call upon the Lord for the good things, but they don't volunteer to sacrifice some of the bad things that they've been doing. When there is one who brought up out of the sea the shepherd of his flock, where is the one who placed... Um, in their midst, his Holy Spirit, who guided Moses by the hand with his glorious arm. Where is the one who divided the waters before them, winning for himself an everlasting crown? Of course, now, this is, again, the prophet Isaiah's prayer 
and he's reminding the people that, yes, Moses was a great leader, but it was really God who was behind Moses in all of his actions uh, that Moses accomplished. Who guided him through the depths like horses in open country? As cattle going down into the valley, they did not stumble. The Spirit of the Lord guided them. Thus, you led your people to make yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and regard us from your holy and glorious place. Where is your zealous care and your might, your surge of pity, your mercy? Hold not back. For you, for you, God, and our father, Judah, were Abraham not to know us, nor Israel to acknowledge us? You, Lord, are my father, our redeemer. You are named from of old. Why do you make us wander, Lord, from your ways and harden our hearts so that we do not fear you? Just go back over that a minute. Why do you make us wander? Well, they God didn't make them wander. It was they did it on their own. Lord, from your why did you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we do not fear you? Hmm. I don't think God did that. Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Why have the wicked invaded your holy place? And why have our enemies trampled your sanctuary? Too long have we been like those who do not rule, on on whom your name is not invoked. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down with the mountains quaking before you as when brushwood is set ablaze, or fire makes the water boil. Then your name would be made known to your enemies, and the nations would tremble before you. While you work awesome deeds, we would not hope for, such as had not been heard of from a bowl. Now, here is a... a verse or a part of a verse, really, that is used a couple times in the New Testament. It says, No ear has ever heard, no eye has ever seen, any God but you, working such deeds for those who wait for him. St. Paul uses this in uh, his letter to the Corinthians, chapter 2. And he turns it around just a wee bit talking about the glories of heaven that are open to all mankind who follow the teachings of Christ and are loyal and faithful to him. So I'm going to just adjust this a little bit. No eyes have uh, seen or ears have heard what God has in store for those who love him. Alright. Those that's the wording that Paul uses in Corinthians. Would that you might meet us doing right, that we might be mindful of you in our ways, 
Indeed, you are angry, for we have sinned. We have acted wickedly. We have all become like something unclean. All our just deeds are like polluted rags. We have all withered like leaves, and our crimes carry us away like the wind. There are none who call upon your name, none who rouse themselves to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us up to our crimes. Yet, Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are the work of your hand. Do not be so angry, Lord. Do not remember our crimes forever. Look upon us who are all your people. Your holy cities have become wilderness. Zion has become wilderness. Jerusalem, desolate. Our holy and glorious house in which our ancestors praised you. He has burned with fire. All that was dear to us is laid waste. Can you hold back, Lord, after all this? Can you remain silent and afflict us so severely? All of this is Isaiah's prayer for mercy. And in, of course, the end, he's acknowledging uh, ever so slightly uh, the sins of all of his people and some of the things that they have experienced because of it. Remember coming back to Jerusalem from Babylon. It was not the glorious country uh, or the glorious city of Jerusalem that they had expected. Now, they knew that Jerusalem and the temple had been destroyed. This was common knowledge. And yet, they were hoping that somehow the Lord, out of his great mercy, would have resurrected the city and the temple, and it would be sitting there waiting for them when they got back. Well, of course, that's not being very realistic. And so when they did come back, uh, they were lucky to come back, uh, and... Cyrus, the Persian, the conqueror of Babylon, uh, helped them to come back, gave them a lot of materials to start restoring the city and eventually the temple, gave them back all of the uh, gold uh, utensils and so forth that was taken from the temple originally, uh, and did a lot of things. He sent Nehemiah to rebuild the city, He sent Ezra uh, to start rebuilding Judaism, the faith of Judaism, etc. So there was a great deal of help. But they didn't look upon that as God sending them help. You know, uh, there's this famous little story. I'm sure that all of you have heard in one form or another about this tremendous rainstorm uh, that was threatening to flood this little town. And this man prayed and prayed to God for protection. 
And as the waters rose, he prayed harder and harder for protection and felt that God was going to save him. And pretty soon, uh, our rescue squad comes with a boat and says, come on, get in the boat. Oh, no, no, God is going to protect me. He's going to save me. And then as the waters continue to rise, the fellow gets uh, up onto the second floor and uh, pretty soon a helicopter comes by and puts down a rope. Come on, get on the rope and we'll pull you up. Oh, no, no, the Lord's going to protect me, etc. You know, and as the story goes on, you know, this happens a third time. Finally, the waters raise up uh, over the guy's head and he drowns. He goes up to heaven and he's very disappointed because, you know, God, I waited for you. Why did you disappoint me? You didn't save me. God's well, you know, I sent a helicopter and a rowboat for you, you know, and you didn't get in. Uh, so, you know, what can I do? Uh, so, uh, and I just read that again in, in a slightly different form in a book. You know, it, it's a common thing, but it has a point. You know, we look for God uh, to come down from the, the pearly gates, you know, with angels and smoke and all of that to take care of us. But when God comes in the ordinary things of the day, we fail to recognize it and quite often don't take advantage of it. So, you know, part of our prayer each day is, Lord, help me to see you in everything and every person around. And then it works. But I think this prayer of Isaiah kind of summarizes a great deal of what all of Isaiah, the whole book, is all about. Now, if we go to chapter 65, this is sort of God's response, you might say. I, and this is God now speaking to the prophet, I was ready to respond to those who did not ask, to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that did not invoke my name. I have stretched out my hands all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own designs, a people who provoke me continually to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks, sitting in tombs and spending the night in caves, eating the flesh of pigs with broth of unclean meat in their dishes crying out, hold back, do not come near me, lest I render you holy. These things are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. See, it stands written before me. I will not remain quiet until I have repaid in full your crimes and your your crimes and the crimes of your ancestors as well, says the Lord since they burned incense on the mountains and insulted me in the hills, I will at once pour out in full measure their recompense into their laps. Kind of, kind of screwed. Are you talking about today, though? Hmm? I said, aren't you talking about today? Yes, yes, by all means. It, 
Uh, it's not any different today than it was then. And that's a sad commentary, you might say, on what is happening to our society today. And yet, there are constantly putting laws into place, not only nationwide, but in individual cities and states. They're constantly strangling the people. It used to be a free nation. Nothing is free any longer. Uh, you can hardly breathe without bumping up against some law that prevents you from doing this lesson. So, And yet, it is the freedom that we have given up uh, to our politicians um, that we most cherish. Again, you get what you vote for. And I'm sorry to say that what we have to deal with is not very commendable. Fate of the just and unjust in Israel. Hmm. Thus says the Lord, as when the juice is pressed from a cluster, and someone says, do not destroy it, for there is still good in it, so will I do for the sake of my servants. I will not destroy them all. Underline all. From Jacob I will bring forth offspring. From Judah those who are to possess my mountains. My chosen ones shall possess the land. My servants shall dwell there. What's happening here is that God is taking matters into his own hands, you might say. And he's going to allow Judah to continue because he needs Judah and Judaism to further his plan of salvation. Remember, we're talking now about the early uh, 6th century, going down almost to the 4th century, uh, where things were really, really bad. Uh, the temple finally, well, the city finally got rebuilt through the efforts of Nehemiah, and the temple was eventually rebuilt, not to the glory that it was during the time of Solomon, uh, but nevertheless it was rebuilt. But then they took the temple, they, they pushed to move and improve and rebuild the temple as a way of controlling the people. This was the high priest trying to control the people through the temple. And as we'll get a little further on, uh, we'll hear what God has to say about that. Okay. <clears throat> sort of lost my place, but... Um, uh, I, I want to go, let's, let's go on because what we have is pretty much the same thing. I'm going to go on to the next page, if you don't mind, here. A world renewed. See, I am creating new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered, 
nor come to mine. Instead, shout for joy and be glad forever in what I am creating. Again, he is taking matters into his own hands. And it's interesting because 500 years later, in the end of the first century A.D., in the book of Revelation, those very same words apply. Very same words. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. Because what is happening here is history is repeating itself 500 years after this was written and every 500 years after that, almost. See, I am creating new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered nor come to mind. Instead, shout for joy and be glad forever in what I am creating. Indeed, I am creating Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and exalt in my people. No longer shall the sound of weeping be heard there or the, cry, the sound of crying. No longer shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few, excuse me, but a few days, nor anyone who does not live a full lifetime. One who dies at a hundred years shall be considered a youth. Gee, I still got time then. <laughs> and one who falls short of a hundred shall be thought a curse. They shall build houses. Of course, now this is exaggerating. Remember that exaggeration was an important point of Jewish writing. All right. It is more or less used to draw attention to what is being said. Okay. They shall build houses and live in them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build uh, and others live there, nor shall they plant and others eat the proceeds. As the years of a tree, so the years of my people and my chosen ones shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not toil in vain, nor beget children for sudden destruction. For they shall be a people blessed by the Lord. This is the Lord's taking things into his own hands and restoring Jerusalem to some degree of normalcy. All right? Because if you think about it, between this time, which is the end of the 6th century, the beginning of the 5th century B.C., to the time of Christ, there was a great deal of change within the physical part of the country and the spiritual part as well. It went from people leaving Babylon with the great uh, determination, you might say, to live in accordance with the teachings of God as declared in the book of Deuteronomy. And they were going to come back and they were going to do this and they were going to do that and they were going to follow these laws, etc., etc. Well, that never really happened. Okay. Not only uh, did they change in a way through the efforts of God, but 
they went sort of right back to the way they were before Babylon. It was the pendulum swinging in the opposite direction, you might say, from great apostasy uh, and idolatry, etc., before Babylon, through the time period of conquering and exile, where they finally got religion, they finally woke up to why they got there in the first place, and that came through the synagogue system being started in Babylon, to the study of the book of Deuteronomy, where they finally understood what the laws were and what God wanted of them, and they made up their mind that they were going to follow. And then as they began to move back to Israel and Judah, things began to take on a determination of following the law to the point of exaggeration where things began to uh, return almost to the way they were before with apostasy and idolatry, etc., taking its place because some of the laws became too restrictive and you had people worshipping the laws in the temple but once they came out of the temple they felt like they could do anything they want because it was like God couldn't see beyond the temple walls and we'll see that in a few minutes here when we get over to that part of it so you went from one extreme to the other uh, and the results are that they returned towards the time of Christ to the same way that they were before Babylon. Unfortunately, uh, Judaism has taken that kind of uh, approach in many respects. How many of you watched the program on the story of the Jews last night? Did you notice that there was virtually nothing said about Judaism itself? That is the faith. It was more on the accomplishments of the Jewish people. And we have to recognize that there was nothing wrong with what he said. I couldn't object to anything. But chapter 6, 66 that is. Thus says the Lord, the heavens are my throne, the earth my footstool. What house can you build for me? Where is the place of my rest? My hand made all of these things, that is, all of creation. When all of them came to be, O voice of the Lord, oracle of the Lord, this is the one whom I approve, the afflicted one crushed in spirit, who trembles at my word, the one slaughtering an ox, striking a man, sacrificing a lamb, breaking a dog's neck, making an offering of pig's blood, burning incense, honoring idol, none of those will he approve. These have chosen their own ways and taken pleasure in their own abominations. 
I in turn will choose affliction for them and bring upon them what they fear. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, no one listened. Because they didn't what was evil in my sight and things I do not delight in they chose. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your kin who hate you and cast you out because of my name say, May the Lord show his glory that we may see your joy, but that they shall be put to shame. A voice roaring from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemy. I don't I want to go back here to this first part of chapter 66 where it says, what house can you build for me? Remember, the people, particularly the Jewish high priest and the priestly class who had sort of risen now to become the leaders. There was no monarchy, remember, so they had no other leadership. There was no structure at, in Judaism at this particular time. And so it was the high priest that uh, sort of took over for lack of anyone else. And so the high priest became the um, de facto ruler, you might say, of the Jewish people all the way down to the time of Christ until uh, the year 70 A.D., uh, when the temple and all of Judaism and its structure was destroyed by the Romans. Okay. But in this idea of what house can you build for me, the high priest and the priestly class wanted this temple to rebuilt because they felt it was a way to control the people. Unfortunately, uh, somehow along the line, they got the idea that God was in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, and whatever they did inside that temple was to worship him. But once they got outside the temple, they could do whatever they wanted. And God wouldn't know that. Well, of course, you see, they're not looking at this realistically. Uh, their whole idea of God never had a deep, theological foundation and still doesn't for that matter uh, Judaism really uh, admits that they do not have a theology a united theology a single theology of who God is for them okay. and their Shema which is their most prized prayer Something like our glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, that, which is a doxology. Uh, their shame is the Lord is one. The Lord God is one and holy and so forth and so on. It's a very short prayer, beautifully uh, presented. But when they say the Lord is one, their idea is one Verses 2, verses 3, okay? Whereas we would look at that is that one means that all things 
are part of God. Alright? The one is not a number, it's a unity of all things connected in one way or another to God. But they don't look at it that way, and that's why they put down the Trinity. Because they say, we worship three gods. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God who has three natures. And how do you explain that? Well, the way I always explain it is that I am a father. I am a son. I'm also a grandfather. All right? But I'm still one person. Now, I relate to my parents, or I did relate to my parents in one way, differently than I would relate to my grandchildren. Unfortunately, God relates to all of us in a uniform way. But through the nature of, through the three different natures that are within him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that there are three gods. It just means that there are three divisions of the one God that has responsibility over certain parts of creation. Um, just sort of as an aside, you might say. Let's, let's go on here. Towards the end, um, on the next page, 172. Blessings and of prosperity and consolation. So before she is in labor, she gives birth. This is a a parable, you might say. Before her pangs come upon her, she delivers a male child. Whoever heard of such a thing, or whoever saw the like, can a land be brought forth in one day, or a nation be brought, uh, born in a single moment. What he's talking about here is the new idea of Jerusalem once things got settled after the return of the exiles to Judah uh, from Babylon. Things began to settle down, not by their doing, but by God's using certain people to restore the city and get it back into uh, some normal resemblance of civilization. And so he's saying here, and he's using the analogy here of a woman uh, uh, pregnant and ready to uh, bring forth a child. Before she is in labor, she gives birth. In other words, the city of Jerusalem is reborn ahead of schedule, you might say. It didn't come through the efforts of the people. It came through the efforts of God. Whoever heard of such a thing, or whoever saw the like, can a land be brought forth in one day, or a nation be born in a single moment? Yet Zion was scarcely in labor when she bore her children. Shall I bring a mother to the point of birth and uh, yet not let her child be born, says the Lord? Or shall I bring to birth, uh, yet close her womb, says your God? 
Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad because of her. All you who love her, rejoice with her in her joy. All you who mourn over her, so that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast. That you may drink with delight at her abundant breast. For thus says the Lord, I will spread prosperity over her like a river, like an overflowing torrent, the wealth of nations. You shall nurse and carry her arm. I am sorry. You shall nurse carried in her arms, cradled upon her knees. As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you. In Jerusalem you shall find your comfort. And you shall see, and your heart shall exalt, and your bodies shall flourish like the grass. The Lord's power shall be revealed to his servants, but his enemies his wrath. For see, the Lord will come in fire, his chariots like the storm wind. This is where the movie Chariots of Fire came from. Okay, The title, that is. To break his anger in burning rage and his rebuke in fiery flames. For with fire the Lord shall enter into judgment and with his sword against all flesh. In other words, this again is a promise that God has made that anyone that afflicts Jerusalem or harms the Jewish people uh, or prevents in any way, God's plan of salvation from moving forward, they will experience his wrath. And those who sanctify and pure themselves to go into the gardens, <coughs> following one who stands with eating pig's flesh and abominable things, and mice shall all together come to an end with their deeds and purposes, says the Lord. I am coming to gather all nations and tongues. They shall come and see my glory. I will place a sign among them. From them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, to Put, and Lod, Moshish, whatever, and Tubal, and Javan, to the distant coastlands, which have never heard of my fame, or seen my glory. And they shall proclaim my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all of your kin from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. On horses and in chariots, in carts, on mules and dromedaries to Jerusalem, my holy mountain, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. What is he saying here is that Jerusalem is going to be a great city. But only if the people turn to the Lord and fulfill what God has asked of them. And of course, that never happened. Jerusalem, even today, if you took away from Jerusalem all that they have and all that they um, receive from Christian tourists who go there on a, a daily basis year after year after year. If that was all taken away, 
what would Jerusalem have left? Nothing. Nothing. Because there is virtually nothing there. It is only the tremendous hordes of people that go there to see the historical events of Christ where he lived and died. That Judah is really the city that it is, or Jerusalem it is. On the other hand, look at Rome. Rome is really kind of the same way, is it not? Rome is a great city, but if you took out the Catholic Church and why people go there because of the Catholic Church, Rome wouldn't have anything really to offer. God has offered all mankind so much. Everything that we have all the good things that we have have come from God in one form or another. Obviously, through our parents, through our own efforts, through education, etc. But if you think of the ultimate origin is from God, one way or the other. And we've got to understand that what God wants us to do is to take all of these great things that he's given us and use them to uh, put out his word to those who don't have that. We've got to be a light to the nations, not only our own, uh, but to all the others. We cannot sit back and be exclusive to ourselves. Here's an interesting comment. I want to uh, I want to finish this up because we've got so many other things to talk about here. Um, beginning on the, verse 22 on page 173, just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I am making, shall endure before me, O oracle of the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name endure, from new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. Now, put a line under that. And we'll come back to it in a minute. Going on, they shall go out and see the corpses of the people who rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die and their fire shall not be extinguished, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. These are those who have refused to welcome God into their minds and hearts and to accomplish what God has asked of them. Now, go down to the end of that page, and let's read that Last paragraph. The book ends on a negative note as it speaks about the fate of those who rebel against God. In rabbinic tradition, the public reading of the book of Isaiah concludes with the repetition of verse 23, which is the one above the line you just 
put in there, to leave the hearers on a note of promise rather than on judgment. Now, isn't that somewhat of a commentary on the entire book? The Jewish people have refused to look at the dark side of what they are facing if they don't own up to what God is asking of them. They are ignoring the warnings. And this whole book is full of warnings. If you don't listen and fulfill what God is asking of you or warning you about, you are going to suffer the same fate. And that is one of the things that we really have to be concerned with. Like I said, there is no happy ending in this book because the Jewish people have failed over and over and over to understand the message. Yes? Didn't you say prior to the other uh, that the Jews didn't believe in hell? Yes, they do not. But this last uh, 24, that sounds like hell to me. And they shall be in horrors to all flesh. Doesn't that sound like hell? Oh yeah, you got it there. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. In other words, I just they don't believe in it. I had the word hell written here before he said that. But they don't believe in it. No. 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 They just, and they, they can't explain why. That's, that's the interesting part. They cannot explain why because they ignore it. They ignore it. Yes, Karen? Mm-hmm. Right. See, in, in this, that they still retain, you know, however shallow, um, a belief in one God. They didn't reject. They rejected God's message, but it doesn't seem to me they rejected God. Well, you're you're right in a way, but in rejecting the message and rejecting uh, the God who made them and all that he's warning them about, that means they really reject him. I know, but they didn't say, okay, we're going to do with the Sumerians. We're going to build all these pagans. Like, you know, they would fight against that. That's not, well, in their own mind, they, they sort of put God up on a pedestal and, you know, felt that he couldn't see what they were doing or didn't care what they were doing. There... And even in Judaism today, unfortunately, there is no uh, concept of a personal relationship with God. All right? He's there. They know he's there. Uh, he's up on the mountaintop. Uh, but we don't want to go up there. In fact, even in... The <laughs> it's yours. It's yours. Oh. (laughs) 
How do you turn this thing off? It's not mine. Uh, in fact, this was left out in the parking lot. Does this belong to anybody? Uh, no. Well, that was an interesting interlude. Yes. Uh, they choose not to. Oh, yes, over a period of time. Yeah, it comes up. Uh, it comes up every so often. But they really don't have uh, a theological belief in why there is uh, a hell or eternal punishment. They choose not to accept that. Yeah. It's, it's, un, it's terribly unfortunate that it's in its... An imbalanced faith system. Cora? Well, yeah, I don't know how to answer that, really. Uh, you see, the dietary laws, as I've said many times, were never intended to be religious laws. But once a person believes that something is a law and he breaks it, then he's wrong. For example, Catholics no longer have to worry about not eating meat on Friday except during Lent. Okay? Now, a lot of people have a relative who still feels that it is wrong to eat meat on Friday. Now, if that person deliberately goes and eats meat on Friday, then she is committing a sin because of her belief system. That's right. And that's the problem that we have uh, with... But it doesn't, it doesn't appear the prophet's calling the Jewish people to have a relationship with God. And here, the, the prophet seems to be calling the people to obey the dietary laws. Oh, well... You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, that, it is. Yeah. That's a very different understanding. Yes? Well, what I get from when she's talking about the Jews, how many covenants did they break with God? You know, a covenant was uh, born in blood, and you had, you know, uh, there were good things and there were bad things if you broke it. You know, if you, if you obeyed, good things happened to you, blessings. If you broke the covenant, I'm going to mess you up. <laughs> And God messed them up all the way up until he started the new covenant with Jesus. He said, I'll try one more time. How many covenants did they break? Six? Well, actually, there was only one covenant that was renewed over and over. Yeah, over and over. Yeah. Um, so they kept breaking the covenant with God. He had to come down hard on them. That's right. And he finally did. Uh the whole idea of once they rejected his divine son, that was the end. And he waited another 40 years hoping that they'd see that and change their minds, and they didn't. And so they wiped out the Jewish nation and the temple again 
in the same way that the Assyrians and the Babylonians are what out it back in the 6th and 7th century. Uh, but the thing is, at that time, the door to the promised land and the promised people, or the chosen people, was open to the Christians through the uh, New Covenant. So are you saying that uh, the first covenant was Abraham? The only covenant he had with his people, but the other ones were kind of like Moses and uh, Noah and all the others. They were just renewal of the first one? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I thought they were all separate. No, no. They were always a renewal of the first covenant with a little bit deeper understanding each time because the people had moved, uh, you know, along that line. Uh, but it was only one covenant that was finally withdrawn uh, from the Jewish people because they rejected God himself in the form of Jesus Christ. Gene? Do you think that God is still working on the Jewish people to change their minds? Yes. Yes. Gene's question is, do you feel that God is still working on the Jewish people to change their minds? And that's true. He's working on all of us to see the light. He being the light. And what we have to do is to constantly pray that our minds and hearts are open to that light to that, so that we obey God and live according to what he has asked of us. That's something that so many people do not understand because they think it's, so, it's controlling. Well, it's controlling, but for the very best of purposes and reasons. Yeah. And the whole idea of submission to the will of God is the height of sanctity. Yes, sir. No, I wouldn't agree with the wording that you've used. He didn't do it as a provocation. This was a gift that was always intended as part of God's plan of salvation. And the door was open even to the Jewish people. But they refused to accept it because their idea of a Messiah was somebody who would be not a god, but an earthly superman who would uh, route them from under the control of the Romans. You know, all earth-based ideas and concepts. Get them back into being a glorified country and nation as, the, as they were at the time of David. And that's why David was always the the idea or the mold that they were looking for of the Messiah, somebody who would be like King David. But the idea of doing something in spite of or as a provoking, no, I would not agree with that wording. Lou? I don't mean to be disrespectful to what you learned 
that's all right. I'll just tell your mother about it. It's like a parent telling a child, do not climb a tree, one day you're going to fall off. And you keep doing it, and you keep doing it, and the kid goes up the tree, and guess what happens? He falls. And so I feel like I've been going through this uh, rhythm in this book all through these series. And uh, I got somewhat weary after a while. Uh, but, you know, I, I kept going. I don't know how the other people felt, but that was some of the feelings that I had. Well, you gotta, you got to remember, and I think your analogy is, is, is good, because God is treating us as a stern father. Uh, and unfortunately, we keep disobeying. All right? But in the prophet Isaiah, because you had so many, I mean, you had so many uh, repetitions of the same message, and that is because it covered two or three or four hundred years, and the prophet or prophets were speaking the same message to different groups of people at different times. And so what we got, you know, in one book all at one time, is all of these messages, a lot of them which were duplications or, or repeating, but it's because that message was going out to a different group of people at different time periods over a period of three or four hundred years. Yeah. But, in your analogy of a father telling a kid not to climb a tree, because sooner or later you're going to fall out, is really the same thing, is it not? The father is doing it for the betterment or the health and welfare of the child, even though he knows that the kid's going to probably do it again. That doesn't mean he doesn't love the child, and that is really what God is trying to show us through not only this book of the prophet, but all the prophets. They all had essentially the same message geared slightly to the difference in time period or the different people that they were talking to. But all of them, uh, you know, I read some of Ezekiel here earlier and it was really the same message. Uh, in today's uh, reading here when it talks about the potter, if you go to uh, the prophet Jeremiah, he has a whole chapter on going down to the potter's house and the whole message of God being the potter and the clay being us and God molding us. And if he didn't particularly feel that what came out of this uh, clay operation, uh, it would be redone. Well, that is really a good analogy, but it's the same message in Jeremiah as it is in Isaiah. And if you read the other prophets, and that would be a good exercise for you over the summer, I mean, you know, summer reading, read all the prophets and you'll see they'll not con contradict each other. Their message will all be essentially the same geared for the time 
and the audience that they have. Okay. Now, let's end our discussion on Isaiah, but let's talk about what you people would like to study if and when we have our next class. And I say if and when because you just never know. <laughs> the Gospel of John. Uh, the Gospel of John was done about three years ago. Uh-huh. Uh, is that what you're recommending? Yeah. Okay. Uh, yes, Louisa? I'm sorry? The letters are what we used to call epistles. What's the difference between epistles and letters? They're the same. Epistle is letter in Greek. Okay? All right. Um, so you're recommending some of the letters? We couldn't do all of them. Hebrews is great, but it's so short, you know, it has to be paired with something else. Yeah. Karen? Romans? Uh, Romans would take ten weeks. Yeah, Romans is very long. Yeah. Paul's letters, yes. Yes. Um, all right. What, anyone else have other ideas? Jeremiah. All right. The only the only bad. No, I shouldn't say it that way. The only negative thing about Jeremiah is that it's a repeat of what we just learned. Yeah. Um, and I think we're not ready for that yet. Jean. Gone with the wind. <laughs> Percy? Corinthians? Alright. Many of you have, many of you have mentioned the letters of John. I mean the, the letters of, of Paul. Alright. You would have to com- you would have to, uh, combine two or three in order to, first of all, get a good idea of what Paul is talking about, and then sufficient material to cover like a 10-week series. All right. So we could do something like uh, Corinthians and Galatians. Romans is another one uh, that I think has a lot to, to uh, talk about, a lot of interesting things. But Romans is long enough to cover uh, in ten weeks. All right, that's about as long as most people uh, have a stomach for. Uh, Colossians is one of my favorites, and that could be paired with Hebrews. Uh, Colossians, I think, is is a very beautiful letter. It has a lot to say. All right. You've given me some ideas. I don't want to make any commitments today. I want to think about it and do some praying. But it's important that we all do some praying, and particularly between now and the end of 
Lent. We have a couple of weeks left. And what I would suggest that you do is to kind of go over the book of Isaiah and think about the main points that are brought out in there. In fact, I just so happen to have some of those main points. You know. <laughs> if you'll just pass those around, please. Yeah, okay. You'll pass these around. If you don't have enough, I'll have some more. Yes, yes, yes. Just pass those around, please. These are. Yes, you got it. Thank you. Oh, okay. All right. Everybody got a copy? All right. No, there's 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 enough for everybody. Okay. Let's go over that this quickly, but more importantly. Uh, I'd like you to spend some time between now and, and the end of Lent to go over this. So it's just as Abraham, Moses, David, and the prophets and others were called to be partners in effecting God's plan of salvation, we, yes, we today are called or are given an opportunity to share in the work of salvation. The Jews of Isaiah's time were privileged because as a nation, they were the direct instrument of God that God used to reflect his divine mercy and goodness to other nations. That is the whole concept of the idea of being a light to the nations. For more than 1,500 years, God worked with the Israelites to make of them a nation whose love loving and just interaction would redound to all mankind and give glory to the Holy One of Israel. That is, they would be a model nation that other countries would want to emulate or compare or repeat or whatever. However, They were more interested in being like the other nations, even in their pagan ways of worshiping. God was respected but not obeyed or truly worshipped, and that's still true in many ways. Instead of reflecting the message of God's love to other nations, they withdrew unto themselves and became an exclusive community. Herein, the usual earthly attractions of wealth, consumerism, and pride became their god or gods with carved images of wood, silver, and gold to pray and to give credit to. Several times did God punish his people as a father punishes out of love, but this was misunderstood and looked upon as abandonment. Finally, God takes matters into his own hands and working with partners from other nations, 
he maneuvers earthly situations such that his plan of salvation can proceed, but the chosen ones who will not get the credit nor partake of the prize, being salvation itself. Now, the following, of course, is a summary of the main points of this book. Judaism and the people of Judah are the servants of the Lord, nourished to carry the message of salvation to all the surrounding nations. The God of Israel is the one and only God, and he has the power to do all that he wishes to accomplish his goal, and that is salvation for all mankind. Any and all nations that harm Israel or prevent God's plan from moving forward will be severely punished or wiped out, as was done with the Assyrians, that is the northern uh, nation of Israel. In spite of knowing all of the above, the people of Judah continued to do things their way. This is what got them into Babylon in the first place. God promises redemption and a return to Judah through the help of Cyrus. This is a major event for the Jewish people, but they don't see it that way. Chapter 51 gives the people assurance of trust in God and hope in his power. Chapters 52 and 3 are the suffering servants' prophecies we hear so often uh, on Good Friday. Listen to them when, if you attend the Good Friday services. The return to Judah, or Zion, is met with great disappointment, which triggers a return to the old ways of idolatry and from the leaders or shepherds on down. Finally, God takes control of the situation and for a time, peace and prosperity return to Israel, but sadly, only for a time. What we must learn from all of the above and from the last 10 weeks of discussing the writings of Isaiah is to guard against falling into the same mold. We must pray daily for God's guidance in our everyday lives and to put him first in everything we do, want, or speak. Sincerity, honesty, and humility are the keys to a loving and worshipful relationship with our God. 